Good morning. Once again, it's a real privilege to be able to serve you this morning by way of this preach. I get to talk about my favourite topic, that's Jesus. I had to look at my notes for that. But. <laughs> and hopefully God will be speaking to you all individually through my words this morning. If you're not a Christian and joining with us here today, I'd also like to extend my welcome to you. And as we go through what may seem to be a, a completely irrelevant bit of ancient text, I have something for you to consider over the next 30 minutes or so as I preach. Something to mull over during the bits that just seem to be a bit like white noise. I've been thinking about the concept of perfection recently. I cannot for the life of me understand how we have this, this concept when we have nothing in the flesh which is perfect. It got me thinking, why do we have this concept of perfection, this unachievable ideal, given that there is no example? Well, I believe I have the answer, which I will reveal to you at the end of today's talk. So, with that to look forward to, and my musings aside, aside, I'd like to start today with a question for everyone. What's the best advice anyone has ever given to you? It's really interesting when you think about it. Is there something that stuck with you that you listened to and followed with a fruitful outcome? Or maybe the question should be, what advice did you ignore that you were given, which turned out to be really good in hindsight, and you wish you'd listened? Well, the following information I'm about to give you will be incredibly helpful to you today and going forward, and I can guarantee that it will be up there as one of the best pieces of advice you will receive. I can assure you that if you hear these words and put them into action, you can expect a life filled with deeper joy. I say this not just because I have weighed the content carefully and I'm really good at preaching, but it's because I'm, I'm giving you God's very words today. These are not my words. Consider that for a second. The creator of the world is here today, and there is a personal message for each of us here. And I say us, because once again, I need this just as much as you guys. I'm not here to preach a message that I've mastered. It's more of an invitation for you to join me in the pursuit of Jesus. And of course, Jesus is what it's all about today. He is what every day is all about. Now, we're currently going through a series looking at the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, uh, leading up to his de death and resurrection. We're counting down to Easter. And last week, we had Amy bring us an amazing message of the institution of the Lord's Supper, how and why we are to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. And the week before that, Jenny brought to our attention the personal sacrifice we make when we devote our lives to Jesus, the lady with the expensive perfume offering all in sacrifice to Jesus, essentially anointing his body for burial. So the story today is a cautionary tale, a true story that we can learn a great deal from if we listen carefully and apply it to our day-to-day -day lives where we are becoming frustrated and bogged down and disappointed with our circumstances. This text offers freedom, security and instruction for our benefit. God loves us so much that he gives his people warnings of real danger. With some precision prophecy, sworn devotions to Jesus, epic fails from the twelve disciples and a really annoying rooster, we are of course looking today at the story of Peter's emphatic denial of Jesus. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verse 26. So I have five points to make this morning. And the first point I'd like to make is, man is imperfect. Picking up the story from where we left off last week, Jesus had just finished instituting the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. And they've all had a good time sitting around the, t the table. That's the disciples. They've all had a great time sitting with Jesus at a table. 
And Judas has by now nipped off to betray Jesus to religious leaders, religious leaders. And we pick the story up here at the end of the meal. Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they, they will fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So there we have it. Brave Peter. What a hero, huh? Here's someone we can get behind. So sure of himself, so headstrong. You can just imagine it, can't you? Peter standing there, nodding at the mention of everyone else falling away. But this wasn't applicable to him. Nope, not going to happen. I'm far better than that lot, is what Peter thought. Verse 31 describes him emphatically affirming his commitment to Jesus, even devoting himself to death. And in the other Gospels, we, we also read that Peter's devotion includes promises of imprisonment for Jesus. Now, interestingly, back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, we read Peter's reply to Jesus about who they, that is the disciples, think that he is. And Peter has declared that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He is one of the few to which God has revealed who, true, who Jesus truly is at this point. Yet, fast forward to our story today, and we have Peter emphatically refuting Jesus' words and to his face. So he knows he's God, but yet he's saying, nope, it's not going to happen. As the story continues, Jesus and the disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So pick up the story again in verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, what I, not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, you, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, and yet the flesh is weak. Once more, Jesus went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say to him. Here we see Jesus giving Peter an instruction. Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. Peter doesn't give a response here, but judging by his actions, I can imagine the thought that went through his head resembled something like, nah, mate, <laughs> things are all good and I can handle this. I don't need to pray. Besides, we all just read eight and I'm full. It's late and I'm tired. Notice that Jesus calls him Simon in this bit because Simon is his birth name. Peter is a nickname that Jesus has given to him and it means rock. It's a, it's a name for Peter essentially to live up to. Now the title of this preach is a bit of a giveaway to what happens next. So with that in mind, let's summarise Peter's response to Jesus' warnings. Now, I imagine a big Britain's Got Talent style X appearing and <clears throat> noise. 
after Peter speaks here would be appropriate. So feel free to make the noise with me as I, as I do Peter's line. So here we go. Jesus says, you will all fall away. Peter says, even though they will, I will not. <laughs> Jesus says, truly I say to you, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter says, I'll die before I deny you. <laughs> Jesus says, watch and pray so that, you will not fall, so that you will not fall into temptation. And Peter thinks, I don't need to, and falls asleep. <laughs> and note how it's not just Peter. It says they. That's the disciples. They all said and acted the same. I can imagine them chiming in with Peter when Jesus first confronts them. Yeah, yeah, what Peter's saying sounds good. And all nodding. And I think it's really important that we pause here and consider what is actually going on. Jesus starts with a prophecy from the Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, in chapter 13, verse 7, which happened over 500 years before Jesus. And it was about how God was going to have his own son killed, that is, the good shepherd, and that the disciples will all abandon him. Jesus then follows this up with a new prophecy of his own over the sequence of the following events. And here we have devout follower of Jesus, Peter, who knows who he is, and he is telling God that he is wrong and that he knows better. Someone who thinks he knows better than God. Does this remind you of another story in the Bible? Well, the truth is, there are many such examples of this. It seems to be a theme, doesn't it? Man professing to know what's best. Not acknowledging that the God of infinite wisdom might just hold that title for a reason. Now, we first see this right at the beginning of the world in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve taking the fruit, rejecting the warning that God gave them, thinking that they knew better, and then sin came into the world. Or take their son Cain, who was given a warning by God in Genesis chapter 4. Cain disagrees with God over the acceptability of his offering to him and is angry. Cain is angry with God. And God warns him in verse 7 that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, the New International Version, um, if you have a New International Version Bible, it says uh, its desire is contrary uh, is desires for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain ignores the warning of God, and he kills his brother Abel, the first murder in history. And we also see this desire for autonomy away from God on a large scale with the actions of God's very own chosen people, the Israelites. For centuries, they go on ignoring God's prophets. And then when they are, uh, when they are sent to warn them, and the people... and uh, when they proclaim of the coming Messiah, and then they actually kill the Messiah himself because they did not listen to the warnings. They thought they knew better. Going back to poor old Peter, I think he generally gets a bad rep because he seems to have the biggest mouth. Or I guess you could say that he wears his heart on his, she- on heart on his sleeve. Peter come, comes across as foolhardly, lovable, courageous, but regularly putting his foot in it. Essentially, Jesus here is building Peter's character to be able to shepherd the flock when he is gone. And this denial definitely plays a large part in this. In his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, John MacArthur devotes 31 pages describing him uh, to Peter, describing him as having a foot-shaped mouth, the leader and spokesman of the twelve disciples, and and seemingly part of the most four intimate of uh, disciples with Jesus. Uh, Peter was called first by Jesus. He was with Jesus the longest, often together with Jesus at key times in the Gospels. 
He was part of the three disciples that Jesus kept closest to him, along with James and John. He was eager, aggressive, bold and outspoken, with a habit of revving his mouth while his brain was in neutral. He was brash, undependable, making great promises that he just couldn't follow through with. He was often first in and often first out. Peter fits the description of a man in James 1 verse 8, who is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. As we read on, we see how Jesus' words come true. As we pick up the story again, Jesus has now been arrested and taken to the chief priest's house for interrogation, and Peter cautiously follows at a distance and ends up on the premises. So Mark 14, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway. He ran away. He ran away into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And then the servant girl saw him again and began to say to the bystanders, bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. So they recognized his accent. But he began to invoke a curse on himself. This is Peter. He began to invoke a curse on himself and, and began to swear, I do not know who this man of whom it is that you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to them, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter broke down and wept. Oh dear, what a sad story this is turning into. Peter the brave, the rock, caught off guard by a servant girl. A servant girl? Well, I think this is particularly significant. Back in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read in verse 47, so the, bit, the chunk that I missed out, in 47 we see that one who stood by Jesus when he was arrested, he stood up to the armed guards who had come to arrest him and chopped off the ear of one of them. In the Gospel of John, we learn it was indeed Peter. So we know he was courageous. But here in the courtyard, we have Peter versus a servant girl. Peter was blindsided. He wasn't expecting this. He was up for a fight when he said, I'll, I'll be with you, Jesus. But Jesus essentially disarmed him. He said, this is not the will of God. And he picked up the ear and healed the guy. What's Peter going to do next? <laughs> He's standing there with a sword. What did you do? You run away. And that's what he did. Sin was crouching at his door, waiting to devour him. Peter not only had abandoned Jesus in the garden, but now he had denied him also. Jesus' words came true. Peter had failed his Lord. And we're not just talking about a mumbled, unclear denial accompanied by a, a shrug of the shoulders. He began to invoke a curse upon himself, an oath-like swearing, directly contrasting the emphatic nature of his comments earlier about how he would stick with Jesus and to the death. Peter was making it quite clear, and not just once, but three times. He was clearly fearing for his life at this point. Indeed, the only kind thing that we can say of Peter is that at least he called down curses on himself. <laughs> so what went wrong for Peter? Well, you may remember from last week, Amy brilliantly made the point of mentioning the metaphor of how the leaven in the bread was the yeast, the component in the mix which caused the bread to rise. And it was a metaphor to be puffed up, to be full of pride. You may have heard the famous saying, pride comes before a fall. And this phrase is often wise and, and true. 
But the Bible has many such wise sayings, as it were, but with much greater depth and richness because it's the word of God. Now, I've got a couple of them from the, from the text, and the following is a couple of passages which would have been really, really helpful to Peter in this point and to us if we pay attention to them. Psalm 10, verse 1 to 11. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one, is, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In his pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of sight. As for all his foes, he puffs up at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. I shall never deny you, Jesus. These verses tell us about the pitfalls of pride. When things go well, it's tempting to say, nothing will ever shake me, in verse 4. Nothing will ever do me harm, verse 6. We can be tempted to feel that we have no need for God. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In his th- for all his thoughts, there is no room for God, verse 4. It's easy to become arrogant, verse 2, and boastful, verse 3. Now this psalm warns us against doing so and reminds us of our need for God. We need God. Proverbs 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs verse 9, uh, 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True knowledge and wisdom comes from first recognizing our true position. We do not know better than God, and we should hold him in absolute awe and reverence. This is what it means in part to fear the Lord. Proverbs 1 verse 20 to 33 is all about the call of wisdom. Verse 20, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the, at the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates to the city, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called you and you have refused to listen, I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord." They would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and, be, and will be at ease without dread of disaster. <laughs> That's quite a heavy proverb, wasn't it? It's a, it's, it's a real warning against ignoring the Lord's voice and turning away. It's not a, it's not a light matter. This is, this is serious stuff. So yeah, this, this, word, this is a, it's a warning. Uh, f- so verse, yeah, following a, par- a path of waywardness uh, and complacency. 
and, and don't do that. Instead, choose to fear the Lord. Listen to him and repent when he corrects you, because if you do, he will reveal to you more than he can ever imagine, and he will pour out his spirit on you. Even the brilliant uh, philosopher Socrates was onto this. One of his famous quotes was, I am the wisest man alive, for I know one thing, and that is, I know nothing. Peter's response to Jesus' warning was full of pride. He pretty much used the exact same words in this warning. I shall not be moved. He didn't listen to Jesus. He didn't listen to Jesus' warning. And so it reflected an attitude of no need for God, essentially. He didn't fear the Lord because he didn't hold Jesus' words in awe and reverence. He thought he could do it on his own. He was complacent in the garden when Jesus instructed him to pray. And this is why Peter failed. It's a very long point. Don't worry, the next four aren't as long as that one. <laughs> point number two, there is hope. So it is, has been a bit of doom and gloom so far, so I hope I haven't lost you at the back. Turn to the person next to you, smile and say, here comes the hope. <laughs> Hooray! So now we have an understanding of why Peter failed. He did not heed the words of the Lord. His house was tested and it fell flat. Thankfully, he had the opportunity to rebuild his house. Verse 72 of Mark 14 says that immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. In stark contrast to the betrayer Judas, who upon realizing what he'd done, considered it and then committed a further terrible sin by killing himself, Remembering the word of Jesus had spoken to him, Peter broke down and wept. I think that's a, an appropriate response. If I had the two choices, weep. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Jesus um, appeared to the disciples a little bit later. Um, sorry, in the Gospel of John and following Jesus' death and resurrection, we have an account in chapter 21 of Jesus appearing to the disciples whilst they're out fishing. So John 21 verse 7 to 17 says that uh, a disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. That's it, he, he was swimming towards Jesus. He didn't just <laughs> throw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, so this is Jesus, the risen Jesus, bring some fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. They'd been with him before. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him again, uh, he said, tend my sheep. No, he didn't. Hang on a sec. He said, feed my lambs. Sorry, they all look the same here. Jesus says, Peter says, he says, yeah, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. How many times did Jesus ask Peter if he loved him? Three, that's right. Just as many times as he denied him. Jesus offers us complete forgiveness. That's the hope. He has new mercies for us every day. It's what is meant by the grace of God. We all fail, yet he chooses to forgive us. Remember, Peter denied Jesus so vehemently, he even called down a curse upon himself. Yet Jesus, in his love and kindness, reaffirms him. And not only reaffirms Peter, but recommissions him. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. We are washed clean, forgiven of our sins, and then we are commissioned to reach out to and care for his flock. That's the church. Becoming a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is not simply to be converted and then sit on your hands and revel in his love. Yes, we can do that, but there is work to be done. The name of Jesus is so desperately needed to be heard. And we can serve here in this church. We can look after each other. We can serve on teams such as tea and coffee and on the kids' work. And if you want to choose a team, choose the kids' work. We need more of them. Point number three, I think it is. Is it three? Yes. There be lions about. We need to pray. I don't know why I said there be lions. It sounds a bit piratey, doesn't it? But that doesn't make any sense because they're in the sea. Now, a few weeks ago, a chap called Michael Cohen was brought before the leaders of the USA to give a testimony about some of the naughty things he did under the supposed direction of the current president, Donald Trump. He was on his way to prison, having already been sentenced. And at one point, he made it clear that he wanted his children, this is Michael talking, that he wants his children and everyone else to be aware of the things that he did so that they could avoid doing such things, that is, to not follow in his bad example. Now, the same could be said about the book of 1 Peter. Following Peter's failure at the denial, a much humbler Peter is writing to the church with a letter of caution and encouragement. To be humble, sober-minded, watchful. I imagine a bit like what Michael Cohen said, a warning for us to not do essentially what he did. Following his his reinstatement, Peter then goes on to leading the first church, and we see his ministry throughout the book of Acts. By the time we get to the book of 1 Peter, we now have an experienced and humble Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 5, Peter is giving us some very good advice of how we can be on guard in our Christian lives and, to, and how we are to respond to the... Sorry, and for those shepherding us, that is, the elders. So 1 Peter 1 verse 13 to 19 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed for the futile ways inherited for your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We are called to be children, obedient children, and to be holy in all our conduct, for we have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. 
This is no small sacrifice. And just as Joe brought in the worship, that he was innocent. He was not guilty. 1 Peter 5, 6-8 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. A prowling, roaring lion. This image really fits in with that whole sin is crouching at your door that we heard about earlier in God's warning to Cain. Now, I did a bit of research on lions and how they hunt, and I learned that whilst they're often as fast as their prey lions, they don't actually have the stamina to keep up with it. So they don't have the stamina to keep up the chase, let alone gain on them. Most of the faster prey don't even bother to run away at full speed. And when the prey can see the lion, they generally all just stand there and stare at it. As long as they can see it, they are safe. This is why lions have to prowl, to sneak up on unsuspecting prey. That's how they get their dinner. And with Peter in this story, I think this is often how we fall foul of sin. It surprises us. We are often distracted by another lion, or we can expect our sin to be, or we expect our sin to be charging at us like a distant bull. And we think we can avoid it because we can see it coming. But the truth is that we are imperfect beings. Our spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus' advice to Peter in the garden was to pray. So we pray. Prayer is our only defense against the prowling lion. There's nothing else that we can do. We need to listen to the words of Jesus. We need to put on the whole armor of God. Not be passive, but recognize the danger. The threat of temptation and sin in our lives is this danger. Peter was blindsided, wasn't he? He was caught off guard by the servant girl asking him and challenging him. He thought he was going to have to fight his way to prove his loyalty to Jesus. But it turns out all he had to do was not deny him. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus foretells Peter's denial in chapter 22, verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But, this is Jesus saying, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We see this action of Satan back in the Old Testament, in the book of Job, where Satan asks God to be able to test Job, to afflict him, so that he may prove that Job has little faith. And that's pretty, pretty bad when you think about it, isn't it? Satan is there demanding. He's like, I want to test him and I want to go for him. When you think, of, let me think that Satan is this bent on our destruction, we really can't be passive about our walk with God because he is the accuser and he is out to claim us. And how wonderful it is that we have Jesus on our side praying for us. That's the most wonderful part of this story, really. The fact that Jesus loved Peter, so he knew that he was going to deny him. And yet he loved him. He said, and when you have turned again, strengthen your back. He's given him instruction before he's even done the sin. And that's the most wonderful thing. He prays for us. He, he's interceding for us. So there's Satan in God's presence and Satan's asking. And then there's Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, I want him. What a loving king, hey? The kindness of our saviour. Point number four, Jesus is revealed. As with the rest of the, the Gospels, this story reveals to us a little bit more about who Jesus is. Where Peter insists that he knows how he is going to react and then fails, Jesus is aware of the future and predicts the disciples' desertion. He predicts his own death and he predicts his resurrection. He also predicts Peter's denial pretty accurately, doesn't he? Even to the point of a cockerel's crowing. 
Now, as with the Old Testament prophets, Jesus has power, though he is the Messiah. He's set apart from the prophets of the Old Testament who did not predict their own deaths and were not resurrected. The prophets always foretold um, Jesus, and they always began by saying, the Lord says and the Lord wills, whereas Jesus would begin by saying, I tell you. Jesus was indeed a prophet in the broad sense of the term, in that he reveals God to us, a man who reveals God to us. But as it says in Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God is revealed to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus had power of prophecy, but even more than that, he had power over death. God revealed himself to us through his son, Jesus. Now, in the weeks preceding this one, we see how Jesus performed miracles and he gathered his disciples. He taught about God's kingdom and amazed crowds. So in short, he was convincing the disciples that he is this long-awaited Messiah, the King. In the last couple of weeks, Jesus had suddenly and repeatedly started predicting his death as he shows his disciples what kind of a king he is going to be, a suffering king. This was the plan all along, from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, God's covenant with Abraham, Israel's Messiah and Christendom. Unlike Peter, whose plan was a prideful and self-interest boast about loyalty, which went, <laughs> Jesus' plan was in line with God, and it was in line with God's will, and he carried it out, the greatest rescue plan ever hatched, perfectly and humbly. This was Jesus' purpose. Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, prior to the betrayal and Jesus' arrest, we have a direct contrast between the actions of Jesus and Peter. Whilst Peter ignored Jesus' warnings, he fell asleep, he was unprepared, he picked up a sword and cut off the ear of one of the guards and then denies Jesus, we see that he isn't in step with the will of God because he did not cling to God. In the face of temptation and trials, Jesus prayed until he swept blood. He had a far greater self-understanding. He understood the trial ahead and was readying himself through praying to God. My fifth and final point is, do we trust in ourselves or do we trust in God? You see, when all, when all said and done, this cautionary tale is all about who we trust with our lives. And the way I see it, we have two choices. Option A, do we trust in ourselves and our own abilities? Or option number B, do we trust in someone who is perfect and loves us? Now, we've all failed, and how frustrating that is. I mean, after all, if something goes wrong, we only have ourselves to blame, right? And even then, our tendency is to look to pin that blame onto someone else. I've been there, you mess up, and instead of taking a good hard look at yourself and taking responsibility for your actions, you try and blame someone else. The good news is, we're all rubbish. <laughs> That's good news. We all fail, just like Peter. We are imperfect. Jesus, on the other hand, is perfect. The apologist Ravi Zacharias said, It's a life of perfection that reaches out to the flawed. God is perfect, and we are imperfect. We are flawed. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Be tough on yourself. Yes, strive to be good, but realize that God is reaching out to the flawed, just as we see with the prodigal son. That's the mercy, the grace of God. It's the unique aspect of Christianity. Every other worldview leans on your works, but he loves you for your own sake. At the start of this talk, I asked you to consider the fact that we live in a world which is imperfect, yet we have the concept of perfection. 
So how is this possible when we literally have not one example? Well, I truly believe that we do have an example of this in the flesh, and that is the person of Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, a good teacher, a leader, a sacrifice for us, yes, but yet still more than this, the perfection of God in mortal flesh. And just with Peter, who went just about as far as you can get when it comes to betraying Jesus, Jesus offers you the same forgiveness. He offers us the same forgiveness. Whatever we have done, whatever our flaws, welcome to the club. It is God's grace that he chooses to forgive you. He is trustworthy and true, and you can put your trust in him without fear of a letdown. If you do not know him this morning, please take this opportunity in your heart to receive him. Open your heart to him. Read an account of his life. These are really good. This is the, this is the book of Mark in a booklet. So that's the whole gospel. And we've got some over there. I really encourage you to pick one up and read it. Weigh him up in your heart. Choose to trust him. Because that is the very definition of faith. It's choosing to trust in him. There's nothing mystical or special ceremony you needed or initiation. He can meet you in your heart wherever and whenever. And Christian or not, please don't be a Peter this morning and assume that you are all right without heeding the words of Jesus. It's time to humble your heart, fear the Lord, and he will not let you down.